Hello and welcome to the THCC podcast. Thank you for joining us. At THCC, we are a vibrant, multicultural and multi-generational church at the heart of East London in Tower Hamlets. And we gather every Sunday to worship God, learn more from the Bible and have fellowship with one another. Our passion and desire is to see the community around us to be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now it's time for this week's sermon and we pray that this message you're about to hear would be a real encouragement for you in your journey with Jesus. So uh, Simon's going to preach on 1 Corinthians 12 verses 7 and 8. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom to another a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. Thank you, Lucy, for praying for me. I think probably she should be praying for all you when I'm speaking, but there you go. Um, We're at the start of a series on spiritual gifts. You may reasonably think that whoever decided I should introduce this series didn't exercise the gift of wisdom. However, they may have had the knowledge that those following me will be able to clear up whatever mess I'm about to make. I'll come back to wisdom and knowledge later. But I wanted to start with something we call context. Um, As the word may be new to you, I'm going to ask first, what does context mean And why is it important when we read the Bible? I suppose that somebody would give you a piece of paper that says, Simon told me that he's on the way out. Simon told me that he's on the way out. Now that can mean a lot of different things. And context will help you figure out what it might mean. For example, if I said it at the end of this service, it probably means I'm about to leave the building. If I'm dressed up to the nines, maybe I'm going clubbing. And if the person who wrote that down was a hospice nurse, things aren't looking so good for me. So you can see how different the meaning can be depending on when and where by whom it was said. Now, you might think, who writes things like that on a piece of paper? Just one sentence without giving a bit more information. Well, actually, I think we Christians do all the time. We call them verses, and we do all sorts of things with them. There's a whole industry putting them on fridge magnets. My wife writes them in cross-stitch. We make our children learn them in Sunday school. I'm not knocking fridge magnets and Sunday school verses. Maybe my wife's cross-stitch a little (laughs) because she leaves bits of threads everywhere that I notice and she doesn't. But I guess the thing about these verses that we write in that way is that we generally know them so well that we know the context. 
So I'd like us to begin this series by looking at some of the context of the teaching of spiritual gifts. Um, There are at least five lists of these gifts in the Bible. We use the word gift, but I think actually they're a mixture of gifts and roles. For example, there is the gift of prophecy and the role or the job of a prophet. And I also think that the gifts are a mixture of the natural and the supernatural. Now that's where it gets interesting. There are people, possibly including some in this room, who might disagree very strongly with what I've just said. In case you missed it, I said that I think the gifts are a mixture of the natural and the supernatural. Just let me exaggerate some to make my point. There are some who think that apostle is a name for someone with leadership skills. That the sole role of a prophet is to teach from the Bible and that anybody who can get four children, two dogs and one husband to church at the same time, has the gift of miraculous powers. That's one extreme. There are others who seem to forget that it was God that created our brains. And so they deliberately appoint the most disorganised person they know as an administrator, because then they will have to rely on the Holy Spirit and on the gift of administration. Now, it's unlikely that anyone here sits at one of those two extremes. But there are people here who feel passionately and maybe very, very differently about these issues, about spiritual gifts. We need to be respectful of that. So the first thing I want to say about context is that people hold passionate very different views on this subject. And that leads me to the most important context, which is the biblical one. I first heard teaching on spiritual gifts 40 plus years ago. And there is one and only one thing I remember from that teaching. It is simply this. 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 teaches about spiritual gifts, but it is what sits between them that is most important. What's between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14? Hopefully you've got it, it's 1 Corinthians 13. And I would argue that that chapter is the most remarkable writing on the subject of love that is found in any book in any of human history. I'm not a great fan of the titles that publishers insert against sections in the Bible. And that's because they're not part of the Bible themselves. They're not something that the original writer put there. It's the things that have been added much later. But on this occasion, I actually think it's interesting to look at the titles that are in my Bible around these three chapters. And they are as follows. 
1 Corinthians 12 starts with a section on spiritual gifts. But then it speaks of one body and many parts. Yet these gifts are not for a showman or a showwoman to take the glory that belongs to God. They're given to us for the common good. And then we have this glorious chapter that reminds us that without love, I am nothing. Then a a section on two of the most dramatic gifts, prophecy and tongues. Followed by instructions that everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So throughout this series, I'd encourage you to remember that context and especially that the Bible puts love at the centre. There's a third context that we should consider. So one that I personally understand least well. This letter was written to a group of believers in a city in ancient Greece. And the second verse of chapter 12 gives you some feel for what that might mean. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to meet idols. And the next verse suggests that it was common for people in Corinth to speak under the influence of a spirit. Now, I've never personally seen anyone outside of a Christian context, if I include cases where um, people are being prayed for, never seen anyone speaking under the influence of a spirit outside of a Christian context. It's very different to the experience of the Greeks. Now, how might that affect the way I read this passage? Firstly, I may not notice the importance of how Paul starts this chapter, 1 Corinthians 12. In verse 3, he wrote this. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul chose to start by clearly separating the gifts he is about to speak about from the pagan practices that were found throughout Corinth. Now, we may not need to hear that, but the need to be distinct from our surrounding culture is a great today as it was then. A little more controversially, because I like to stir things up occasionally, can I suggest that the call to do things in a fitting and orderly way should be seen in the context of an ancient Greek city? You may not always think it, but I think we live in one of the most orderly cultures in history. And that may actually affect what we understand by the term orderly way. So there are three contexts that I just encourage you to consider as we move through the series and spiritual gifts. The first one is, if you like, our culture as the hearers. People hold passionate and very different views on this subject. 
The second is the biblical culture, what the Bible says around this verse. And it puts love at the centre. And the third culture is that into which this letter was written, the Greek and Roman culture that likely saw these things very differently to us. So that's context. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. To one there is given the Spirit, through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge. By means of the same Spirit. Now, many of the gifts we'll be teaching on are mentioned multiple times in the Bible. But this is the only verse I know of that speaks of a message of wisdom or a message of knowledge. And that actually makes it harder to understand what is meant. Uh, Now, I have a particular challenge because I can't read this verse without the phrase word of knowledge banging around my head. And the problem with that phrase is that it comes from my experience of church and not from what I've read in scripture. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm saying it can influence how I read this. So how, how do I clear my head and figure what this writer means as best I'm able to? Well, I've, I've done two things. Firstly, I looked up every reference to knowledge and wisdom in the Bible. And I also sat down and read through chapters 12, 13 and 14 and 1 Corinthians together and also some other passages I thought were relevant. I'll start with 1 Corinthians. See, if you take 1 Corinthians 8 out of context, it could refer to our natural ability to think and to learn. You could interpret it as meaning that God will give the church some brain boxes who will be able to preach and interpret the word for everybody else. Now that sounds reasonable. Let's have some experts. Except that we have 2,000 years of history that should should tell us that giving some people that responsibility doesn't necessarily work out very well. And if you know church history, you might even go as far as suggesting that we should only have the Bible available in Latin so that there's no risk that those lacking in wisdom or knowledge could read it. And just to be very clear, I'm not suggesting that. If you consider the context of an ancient Greek city and you read the first six verses of chapter 12, which touch on that context, then I think it is clear that at least in part, this verse is talking about supernatural gifts. Now, I have a hard definition of supernatural. For me, if somebody stands in front of a group of maybe 30 people and says, I believe God has told me that there is someone here with a bad back, that isn't supernatural. 
Because by the law of averages, it's very likely that in a group of 30 people, somebody will have a bad back. Now, that does not mean it's wrong to do that. And it doesn't mean that God hasn't spoken. It may be that God wants someone in that room who has a bad back to know that he cares about the pain they're going through. But for me, for it to be supernatural, it needs to be much more specific. For example, you could go into an area where many people would consider you an enemy. You could walk up to a complete stranger and you could tell them that they have slept with six men and they aren't married to the one they are living with now. I'll explain in a moment why I've come up with um, a slightly crazy example. Let's just think how that person might respond, assuming that God had spoken and that that message was accurate. They could be very angry, but more likely they might be in shock or perhaps even very, very fearful. Now, I could understand the fear. It was often people's reaction to angels who are God's messengers. Perhaps a message of knowledge or a message of wisdom is something that God could bring through an angel, but which he chooses to communicate through a human instead. Why would I choose sleeping with six men as an example? Trying to put you off the verse or hide from you the verse I'm about to read. I'm reading from John 4, verse 17 to 18. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I think that's one of the clearest examples of a message of knowledge that we have. Something I hope this series of talks will do is make us think, are we actively experiencing the supernatural in our lives? I don't mean the supernatural of you have a bad back. I mean the supernatural of you have had five husbands. And I would say that the elephant in the room, if we're honest, is that the New Testament, both in Jesus' life, which we perhaps can separate, but also in the life of the early church, is full of that kind of supernatural. But I don't see it. In the church around me. That's the elephant in the room. And I don't have all the answers to that. I will say something I found very helpful when I first heard it. Yet the New Testament records the most dramatic events of, of maybe a 50, maybe even a 100-year period of history. And that's a huge period of period of history squashed into a few pages. 
And that means that the events we read about were actually spread out over a long period of time. It is possible that every day in the early church, some incredible miracle happened, and that most of them weren't written down. But it's also possible that they may have gone months without anything happening. Yeah, and you don't write, that was another day when nothing happened, that was another day when nothing happened, when you write in the New Testament. Now that doesn't remove, and I don't want to suggest in any way that removes the challenge that the New Testament gives us with the supernatural. But I think it does balance it a bit. What about a a message of wisdom? I found a a verse in Job that, that really made me smile. You know, even when life is completely miserable, there's time for a little comedy. Job was in a terrible place, and his friends really, really weren't helping. Job 13, verse 5, he said this to them. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Tempted to say it to all of you, but I want to talk to you later. If any of your children start quoting this verse at you, you'll know that yet again someone lacking in wisdom has let me loose on Sunday school. Love to teach them that as a verse. Now, with people like me around, it would be helpful if this church had some people gifted with a message of wisdom. However, the example I found in the New Testament was for a very specific purpose. Um, Listen to Jesus speaking, Matthew 10, verses 18 to 20. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now that was a promise that was perhaps most clearly fulfilled for Stephen says this in Acts 6 verse 10 about Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Five verses on in Acts 6, it tells us that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but there's just that suggestion that in bringing these messages of knowledge and wisdom, we are acting as angels do. Now, I've used the word knowledge and the word wisdom, kind of assuming you know what I mean. I haven't given any explanation as to what those two words mean. Um, I think I'll start this by just apologising to anybody who's at uni right now. But there is an argument that at university, especially at very academic universities, people's brains are pumped so full of knowledge that any last trace of common sense or wisdom is pushed out. 
Now, I say that because it kind of gives an idea of what the difference between knowledge and wisdom might be. And also, there's a, a view in that that wisdom is to be sought ahead of knowledge. Now, when I started preparing this talk, there were two verses that kind of came to my mind. First is Genesis 2, verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that paints a slightly negative view of knowledge, which is kind of backed up by 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, which says this. Now about food sacrificed to our idols, we, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Now many of us can rightly relate to the idea that knowledge puffs up. We may have seen it in others. If we're really honest, we may have experienced it in ourselves. And some of us may be very bought into the view that those who are traditionally seen as having knowledge aren't wise and so shouldn't be trusted. That's kind of a debate that erupted around the pandemic. I spoke earlier of the elephant in the room. Well, the question as to who can be trusted to provide wisdom is a can of worms. And not just for us, but for wider society. I'm going to pass on opening that can today. And the Bible has a great deal to say about wisdom and knowledge. There are around 350 verses on the subject. And yes, I did read all those verses, but I confess I skim-read them. But one thing I realised was that just two out of those 350 verses, combined with the culture that I come from, may have twisted my understanding of those two words. Just as an illustration, um, if you'd asked me a few days ago, what did Solomon ask God for at the beginning of his reign? I would have said very confidently, wisdom. I checked with two members of my family and they said the same. You may know where this is going. Two, sorry, two Chronicles 1 verse 10. This is what Solomon said. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Yes, of course, Solomon did ask for wisdom, but he also asked for knowledge. And God responded by saying, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. Just pull me back a bit. Why, why didn't I remember that Solomon had asked for knowledge as well as wisdom? Yet I actually fear that some combination of my culture and maybe my experience of teaching in the church 
Block the word knowledge out of my mind. The prophet Isaiah foresaw the coming of Jesus. In Isaiah 11 verse 2 are these words. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Through the Bible, those two words are often paired together. And in many ways, knowledge and wisdom are seen as equal. I only found two verses, which happen to be the two I remember, that suggested that wisdom is to be desired more than knowledge. Now, I haven't really got my head around this, but I think our translation of Wisdom and knowledge doesn't fully communicate what the Bible means because we're in a different cultural context. I'll just give one example to illustrate this. Possibly the first time I've ever quoted from the King James Version of the Bible. But King James Version of the Bible translates Genesis 4 verse 1 like this. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I'd love to hear that at a wedding. I've gotten a man from the Lord. But over the ages, that's, that's likely encouraged a good few people to, the, to use the word new with a bit of a smile. Now, I always thought it was translated this way because the translators were embarrassed by what they were writing. And they have been doing them an injustice. The word knowledge in the Bible includes the idea of intimacy in a relationship. So to know God isn't to be able to write lots of facts about him. It's to be in a relationship with him. Now, I made fun of unis earlier, so it's perhaps important that I say that the Bible is a book that puts great value on both wisdom and knowledge. Um, One of my daughters struggled some at school, and I remember her asking me once, Why can't we just be born knowing everything? The reality is that if you value wisdom and knowledge, you will value learning. Because that's how you get them. A Jewish friend once told me that to be seen as a success in the Jewish community nowadays... You have to be one of three things. You have to be rich, or you have to be a religious expert, or you have to be a professor at a university. It's really interesting, isn't it, that thousands of years later, in that community, the culture of valuing learning remains. 
So I believe that there is a natural and a supernatural side to the message of knowledge and the message of wisdom. And we should take hold of both. The supernatural must be for the common good. The natural should be centred on our relationship with God. And both should have love at their centre.